Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo. But at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change in special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Association of Bragg Spouses, also known as ABS. ABS is a place for spouses at Fort Bragg to get together and enjoy volunteering and fellowship for the betterment of their Fort Bragg community. They do so in developing and fostering a spirit of community and provide opportunities for social, cultural, and creative pursuits, and to also support service and community projects, just like this podcast. We thank them for their sponsorship. And if you would like to connect and learn more about ABS, you can do so by sending them an email at fortbraggabs at gmail.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Barnhill, the Chief Operating Officer and Lead Researcher for Partners in Promise. As you might have noticed, we went on a little bit of a hiatus over the summer so we could prep for our annual survey, which is going to be fielded this September. And so we're very excited about that. And in kicking off that survey this September, we are also kicking off a new season of the podcast that will, again, focus on military family stories. We are at heart a storytelling organization, and we loved our data series and are ready to jump back in to hear more about what you all are experiencing. And we'll just start right now doing just that. So today I'm actually joined by one of our volunteers who's going to share a little bit about her story. And this is Caitlin. I'm going to mess pronounce your name. Uh, we even talked Everyone about does. this before. We, <laughs> Urkula. Did I get it right? Well done. Yay. That's the hardest part of the interview is saying oh, Urkula. You're <laughs> not. I, well, we love Caitlin. She's joined us. And I would love to just kick it to you, Caitlin, just to give a little bit of a background, who you are within the military community, how, how we're even talking today. How did you start with Partners in Promise? And we'll go from there. Wonderful. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you as always. And I have been a, an army spouse for 15 years, and I have three kiddos that inspired me to look for resources. And we are in the EFMP program because of my two sons. I have a 10 year old, a nine year old and a three year old. And I guess I found partners in promise with a, a good old fashioned Google search. Um, I was actually looking up <laughs> legislation. <laughs> um, my background in history is as an educator. I had the privilege of teaching in the public school system, a high school. So I'm not scared of anything anymore um, and enjoyed it thoroughly. I also write curriculum and just try to use those gifts in the army capacity but I've also been working as an advocate and trying to get legislation to 
support the system for these kiddos, because I strongly feel there is no more opportune time for a person who has unique needs or disabilities than we have right now in terms of accessibility, acceptance, awareness, and information. However, there's still a long, long way to go. And I want to be a part of that journey. Wow. We're so excited to have you. And, you know, there's a lot of different topics we could cover. You know, we've chatted (laughs) a few times before and, and, you know, it's so fun to kind of get to know um, your background, but we're really focusing um, on this podcast and one aspect of your journey that kind of overlaps with a few others. And so one part of our survey data that we were, or I, I can only speak to myself, I was surprised to see was the level of caregiving that our military spouses who have children in EFMP are performing. I was very shocked. And so um, that number is 64% uh, cited that they were not currently employed in a paid position. So they maybe are a volunteer, maybe they're not working, not looking, and you know all of those numbers, but the total there, 64%, that's, that's a lot higher than even, um, I, I read recently, uh, with the pandemic that blue star families estimates that the general population for military spouses will be somewhere in the 35% of unemployment range. Um, and so that's very high. I wanted to just, you know, ask you, because I know that this is something that you're familiar with. How did this decision happen? I guess if it's a decision at all, how did you, how did this happen within, in your life? How did you become a caregiver? Well, the definition of a caregiver is where we'll start because caregiver can mean many things, just like parenting, you know, can mean, you know, similar, but different things. So started at the beginning with the, what is the actual definition within the, the data for the caregiver? And it says a related or a non-related person who has the responsibility for the protection, the care, and the custody of another. So in many ways, the caregiving started the way it usually does when you're a mom. And that's, I had a baby. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's hard to, hard to skip on that. (laughs) Yeah. And by then it's like, well, they're here. And, um, you know, joking with my husband, he goes, I'm pretty sure if you choose not to, that's called neglect. And I said, yeah, it is. But, but truly with moms and and parents, just anyone caring for a kid, we, especially now are wearing so many hats on, you know, just who is their teacher? How are they educated? Do they have all of their medical care adding in all the PCSing, you know, are they going to be in an activity, all of the mental load, but with my kiddos, it began, um, my oldest who is 10 is named Jonathan. And when I had him at five weeks old, I, uh, or when he was five weeks old, I should say we PCS from Georgia to Arizona where I was a little isolated and did not have great care. And while he was seeming to be a healthy baby, just who had a lot of colic, I had postpartum depression and didn't know it and was undiagnosed. And so a community group at a church kind of adopted and enveloped me and said, um, we've got you, here are some resources. And so I had that on my radar and 20 months later, we were graced with William, William, the conqueror. He is extra (laughs) in every way. And this was really where the story began because, um, prenatally we, found out that William has down syndrome. So an extra chromosome, extra attitude. 
and a lot of extra care. So at the time I was still you know, pregnant with him. My husband was deployed. I feel like that always goes without saying, so my uh, yes. husband was gone. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and this meant a lot of appointments, a lot of checking on, you know, heart issues and finding out what does this mean? Getting a 100% confirmation through blood work, which was novel at the time in, um, 2012. So my husband was sent home and I was given a lot of information, but this was also kind of where a stigma began as, Oh, you are a special needs mom. And I went, what? And the, the doctor, the head of maternal fetal medicine refused to call him William. He said, my patient's the fetus and any concerns you have goes to a pediatrician. What? And so I I thought, well, maybe I'm just emotional about this, but a nurse came in and she said, I have a daughter with down syndrome. She's 13. I'm going to get a packet of everything you need to know starting out. And she was my, my lifeline. So William was early. So we were in, you know, in the group with the NICU type parents. That is a whole nother uh, podcast, but you know, all of the immediate concerns, is he breathing correctly? The liver, the bilirubin, all of those things that come with having an early kiddo, but he literally came out swinging. He was still, you know, six pounds, 11 ounces at, at early. So he, he was here to make a splash with a head full of red hair and that he did. But at the time, Jonathan started really acting out and did not have a whole lot of speech. He was now nine months old, 10 months old, really. And, um, started looking and going, Hmm, okay, what, what is going on? And so teacher mode came in and at the time, you know, autism was the big buzzword. Oh, every, every boy's not talking. You need to get him looked at for autism and look at this, look at that. And having a child with down syndrome at the very beginning was a very different scenario because people were watching and were ready to help. So the county services of infant and toddler were in our house constantly. You have occupational therapy, feeding therapy, speech therapy, PT, volumes and volumes of paperwork that I would just pour over and go, okay, but what about the national associations? What about, you know, Down syndrome associations and support groups? What can we do? And it was all really daunting on everything that would be wrong. But then I found moms. I found other moms who said, I have a kid with Down syndrome. Hi, hi, welcome to the group that you never knew you wanted to be in, but we're here. Here's a really good doctor. And that's where I learned the mom network is the strongest you'll find. So skipping forward at about one year old, William started losing a lot of weight and had a lot of failure to thrive. We went through so many appointments. And at this point, still dragging two-year-old Jonathan along, we went to 258 appointments in one year with a husband. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And with, I mean, waiting rooms, overstimulation, thankfully, most of them were closer on post, but a lot of times it's okay. Hurry up and wait referrals. Let's see. These are just standard checks at it's borderline at it's borderline and, um, maybe a failure to thrive. Well, the child was back down to nine months, six months old clothes, and he was truly starving. And I could not figure out why feeding him wasn't working. And ultimately it took my husband coming home from a deployment, putting on a uniform and coming and saying, I need a referral to Duke. And wouldn't you know, I went in 17 times. He went in one time he got the referral. So (laughs) six months later, it turned out the reason it was not working is because William has leukemia. 
it is very common for children with Down syndrome to have leukemia, which was in the packet, but all of the borderline paperwork had not been looked in on. So at this time he had a feeding tube that was put in and he started gaining weight. We thought he was great. Good to go. Our buddy was back. He was so chubby. He had blue glasses. He looked like a minion, quite frankly, (laughs) darling. And we had bow tie Tuesday off. We went and, um, they said, you you're moving into a hospital an hour and a half away from your family and your son who is struggling, you're moving in. And that very quickly was when I became a cancer mom. Yeah. I mean, it's overwhelming in so many different ways, right? I mean, you're dealing with, in, I mean, I can imagine in, in your mind, one of the worst moments to come to that realization where you're feeling like devastated for your child. And then you're also having to, you know, I think of like, I, I'll reference Encanto with the, the gal who like is holding up the whole world on her shoulder that, you know, <laughs> what does it feel like? You know, what does that Service. feel like when you, when you come to those moments, you know, I think that we all have some level of familiarity with what it feels like to being asked to handle one more thing, but as a caregiver, and it's about the health of your child, it's a different struggle, I think, than, than just being asked to make cupcakes, you know, I mean, not to say that that's not to make light. It's not to make no. light, but it's, it's just an acknowledgement that things are different. What does that feel no, like? I'm, I'm laughing because actually that's a huge part of the story. So here's where we zero oh. in on being a caregiver. Okay. So we don't get a choice to be the caregiver because in the system, a lot of the work has to be the sponsor or the parent, unless you do a power of attorney that gives a lot of power to someone who frankly probably should not have it, but all of the medical decisions, financial decisions, all of it has to be someone. So it's either the service member who is working or you're getting phone calls all the time. You're having all these appointments. So if you have a kid in school, you're having to pull them out for this, maybe driving an hour. So many of the tasks cannot be done, truly cannot be done by anybody else because who else is going to do transportation? A nursing group can't do that. You're at at this point, have a feeding tube. You're trying to get equipment that is necessary. And this is, you know, for a medically complex, fragile child, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, well, where is the scale? You know, it's a spectrum of disability within this program on what the needs may be. Is it deaf? Are you hard of hearing? Is it blind? Or are you in full need of care? And very quickly, not only was I doing every single life skill for this child, but I also realized I was the representative. So as William was born and they kind of pulled aside and said, okay, so this is what you need to know about school. And here's what an IEP is. I was delighted because as a teacher, I knew the IEP system. I knew how to do this already. I wasn't starting from scratch and it was something familiar. And I thought, oh, good. Okay. This is familiar in this uncharted territory. What do we do? So I would take him into these appointments and I, I went to everything I could that was offered through EFMP, through the hospital um, that I could attend with Jonathan in tow. And I will never forget it. I um, called and called and called for a case manager. And finally, she called me back and said, you've been removed from my case list, but I had to give you a call. The doc that you met with and the chief that you met with who would say, yes, you're entitled to a case manager (laughs) said, this is a mom who came in and presented as clean, 
dressed. She's educated. She has a master's degree in this. She knows how to navigate this system. We have so many other mothers who need more help. She's going to be fine. She doesn't need your services. What? You're clean and dressed. I like that. That's been, (laughs) I mean, established. That's what. Well, exactly. So then I, so live it. So about a month later, I was taking Jonathan in for an appointment saying, we, can we get a neurology test here? You know, we'd had some birth complications. He was oxygen deprived at birth being cord wrapped. And, you know, it wasn't against looking at autism. But I said, well, we we've got an issue here going on and I'm just wanting to really look at this. And she said, well, we can do ADD meds or not, but let's look at you. And as I walked out the door, she says, you're doing great, mom. You're doing all of the right things, accessing everything that I would suggest you're already doing. And besides you look great. You look like you have it all together. And I was just done for the day. And I've turned around and I looked at this head doctor and I said, but if I came in in pajamas with dirty hair and no makeup, looking exhausted, screaming for help, would you say that the kid wasn't okay? Or would you flag me as someone who needed help with caregiving, who would wasn't capable of doing what was necessary. And she looked me dead in the face and goes, you know what? That's exactly what would happen. So at that point I realized, oh, we have to balance this line of I'm capable and competent and know what I'm talking about to hold on what resources are going on. So skipping ahead then to the cancer. So there, so there we are. And I'm living in a hospital an hour and a half away from my family while my husband is still working. And um, thankfully at that range, not deploying, we had a six month cancer um, treatment and it was living in a hospital day in, day out, not sleeping every two hours. You're, you're getting this, it's a five hour chemo drip. And so now as a caregiver, you are not only responsible for knowing what the treatment is and monitoring, how is your child doing? What about the skin? How are they reacting to this medicine? But what will this do long-term? And part of it is impacting their intelligence, their capability. Um, Leukemia attacks the legs. My kiddo went in at age two. He did not walk till he was four. And we're still trying to keep all of this up. And then the bills start coming. And if an MRI or, you know, anything isn't put in with the exact right coding, it's kicked out. So if you have rounds of doctors and one of the doctors is in a network, well, that's $10,000 a pop that you're having to fight back. And so I finally started keeping, I I love the data as well. 58 hours on the phone with TRICARE over three bills. For three, three bills. For three bills. If if you were going to ask me, I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine how much time you spend dealing with TRICARE in general. If you could give <laughs> like an estimate or an I, equiv- maybe even equivalent to a, how much of a fraction of a, a job, full-time job. It, it, it was a full-time job to the point that people would say, I didn't, I wanted you to know that we wanted to invite you, but we know you're always busy and on the phone for Jonathan's care. It, it was 56 hours one week. I, I did look back on it. I became on a personal first name basis with a lot of the call center people to the point that I had my husband make a call on a, a day that they had a training holiday. And I kid you not, they go, where is your wife? I wanted to tell her that my daughter ended up having a girl. And he goes, what is going on here that you know the life story of these TRICARE people? And I said, because I'm on hold and they're helping me with all of these claims over and over that if it's not done right, it kicks to the hospital. And then every hospital, has a different system. So Walter Reed is not the same. 
Can I ask? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please do. <laughs> can I ask if you were if you were gonna if you were gonna say like if that process was different, how much time, you know, percentage wise was spent actually doing the caregiving versus maintaining paperwork? Oh, the the paperwork truly was a full time job, truly a full time job, and it just kind of became common knowledge in the joke. And actually, a friend of mine who has a daughter with a brain tumor right now, we, we check in with each other weekly and go, how many hours did you spend? And and we just, you know, that's one of the things we kind of commiserate on, on this back and forth about similar MRIs, et cetera, which is the other, the other part of it. So yes, I have a son with down syndrome and leukemia. And at this point I have a three now turning four-year-old we get out of the hospital and it's very frightening to have a kiddo who's going through chemo treatment. And of course now everyone's very aware because of COVID-19, what happens to the immune compromised. So we're on alert for about a year. And at that point we had been waiting at two different duty stations, three years for testing for an autism diagnosis. So it had been identified, but to actually get through that took three years. So he was identified as being on the autism spectrum but we still suspected something was going on. So I asked for an MRI and it showed just a very light shadow. And of course, then no follow-up because of PCSing. And as we got to the new station, my husband deployed, we started school. And one day my son came to me and said, mom, my head hurts. And I turned around and he fell to the floor and did not get back up. And after about eight hours of the hospital, frantic calls to my husband overseas and many scans, they said, ma'am, we're going to fly you to Johns Hopkins. Do you know where that is? And I just started laughing. I said, yes, that's where my son finished his chemo treatment. He says, well, you're going back again. Your son has a brain tumor. We think he's bleeding out of his brain. You need to get there now. He may be in surgery when you get there. And off we went. So The caregiving then at that point was cancer times two. I have two sons with completely genetically unrelated cancers. I am one of very few families in the world. I believe currently only five in the United States. So we are dealing with a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, your story, you're dealing with compounding issues, you know, one after the other, after the other. And that seems to be um, a pattern with caregiving, especially in the stories that we've heard, you know, when you're dealing with all of these compounding issues, you know, maybe not everyone is experiencing the same as what you've experienced, but it seems that that's a pattern. Is there something you wish that you would have known or any solutions or resources that were very helpful for you? Because of course, caregiving can be you know, it's mentally, financially straining. There's so many parts to it, but what has been something that either helps you get through it to be clear, it's not going to make the hard things go away (laughs) and acknowledging them as part of that. Right. I assume. (laughs) No, it's a complicated question. I know exactly what you mean, because the experience again, is going to be unique to each individual and what helps. And even in each season is different. And honestly, um, it wasn't anything that the military provided. It's, um, as you can probably tell, I'm a bit of an extrovert and everywhere we go, no, <laughs> we built no a community <laughs> and, uh, my William will sit on the, on the trampoline and jump up and down and wave at all the neighbors. 
and the joy that the neighbors have when he starts being able to pronounce their names that he started with Emma and the day he managed to say Kennedy. Oh my goodness. That would be party. And the biggest thing is it really feels hopeless. It just really feels hopeless. The more that you look at resources and things that are supposed to help, the more you go, well, why bother? Because healthcare is a hydra. Every single time you have an appointment, three heads sprout out of more appointments to have. Um, and the th biggest thing I would say, and I say often is it isn't hard because you're doing it wrong or because you're not doing enough. It's hard because it's hard. And when you're going through, there is a stigma to being the special needs mom. You know, they, they have all of these, you know, each one is different, but you know, we're bitter, we're angry. We're trying to go up against the school district and, you know, things like that. And the, you know, truly my best advice is write everything down and document, document, document. Um, but you know, amen <laughs> for, for example, this year. So knowing that you have two kids with cancer who have gone through these chemo that impacts education really impacts education. And it's, you know, often labeled as a behavior issue. If you have a kid having sensory issues, things like that, or headaches or not feeling well. So I had a kiddo who had to go back half day and this poor kid was completely bald. He had lost all kinds of weight. He's sitting in a kindergarten and first grade class with everybody else with a bucket next to him because he might throw up. That's really difficult especially when you have a kiddo who had been nonverbal until a tumor came out and now is regaining speech. So for every wonderful celebration, it's back. So when we PCS here up into Virginia, I knew that we have a lot of services we require. So I made sure to electronically send the IEPs and physically walked them up to the school once we moved here in the summer. And then COVID <laughs> made everyone move to virtual. Oh my gosh, trying to do a homebound and virtual with nonverbal children who cannot type. And if they stare at a screen, get neuropathy and whoop, down they go nice and dizzy was the challenge. So I wanted to make sure everyone knew what was coming in and the Urkel is coming hot. <laughs> so delivered it multiple times in February, in May, in June, and in July. And the gal I've been working with PCS and the other retired and same thing with ATS. We needed a talk pad for one of my kids, sent an email that I got back. A, we are doing the best we can. Maybe you didn't know there was a pandemic. We'll get you when we get you by October. My kids had no services established. They had been placed in the wrong area. They had no IEP in place. And they said, here are the OTs at the school. Why don't you contact them to set up appointments virtually? No, ma'am. That's not how advocacy works. We had 10 appointments or 10 IEP meetings in a year. And I know these things. I did everything right. And truly, you just, I hate to say it, you have to go to an advocate. You have to bring in legal for them to go, oh, we don't want to go to mediation. Okay, fine. But most of the parents I talk to now will say, you know what? We're PCSing in six months. Why bother? Or, you know, I can fight and say my daughter needs an aid, but they're not going to give it to me. They're not taking the data or I'll bring it in. And you know, then what they're not going to give it to me or well now the teacher, it's the same teacher. 
or the teacher is wonderful, but has no idea how to work this technology, or this teacher is awesome. She's never worked with a deaf student before, and she has eight other kids in the class that all have sensory issues. What do we do with this? And so we don't want to be a burden on the people who are helping us. But again, all of this comes back to the caregiving. The mental load is incredible. The other aspect of the caregiving truly, and this is where it gets nitty gritty, is if you have a kiddo that truly can't belong in the scenario with most people, I can't tell you the number of EFMP events we've gone to that I go, well, we don't, we can't access it. There's not a bathroom. There's not a ramp. I don't care about pizza. If I have a kid who has a feeding tube and if they get a cold, it could kill them. I can't go. And then I can't bring my typical kiddos to an awesome activity. You know, so thank you for the sit and paint and read and learn. That's wonderful. But not if you have a teenager with cerebral palsy who needs to be changed and where on, on a park bench at an event. No, why would we go for that? And that kind of support and education, usually they just give you information and say, go. I'm sorry. I know this seems so, so helpless and so downing, but no. the other thing, honestly, it's when you are at the park and you find another kiddo, you go, Hey, Hey, hi, hi. I'm one of those moms too. How are things going? And when you have a child with down syndrome, the disability is visible. Not all are, but it's visible. And so it's very easy for someone to walk up and go, hi, I've got one too. It's the most awkward thing. It really is to be like, Hey, I've got one too. Like they're people, they're wonderful, but you find other folks that do it. And I built a community that loves my children and that will come into my house. Asking me to go somewhere with my kids is not helpful, whether it's to learn about IEPs or, you know, advocacy or legislature, we're exhausted. William hasn't slept through the night since he was two. This started with chemo and he would wake up along with the nurse's shift at two and at four and at six and at eight. And mind you, this is a darling kiddo who would just dance all the time and was wonderful. And Bowtie Tuesday was a big hit, even as doctor started in. But this is a child who is banging his head because his head hurts so badly from chemo. And he continued to do it. It took us six years to get a medical bed. So we had to sleep next to him to keep him from making himself black and blue. We can't leave him somewhere because fecal throwing would happen. And there is no military or EFMP respite care or service that's going to come in and scrape the wall with you at two in the morning, but your friends will, they'll show up and tear up your carpet and we'll help you refloor when everything bursts and we'll play with your kid and go, I am so sorry. This is so hard because most people don't know what to say or they run away. And that kind of disability was hard. However, there's a dichotomy because with cancer, I cannot tell you the support we got. Oh my goodness. This kid, the, more than any Christmas morning, boxes and boxes of gifts and encouragement. We still have every note that was sent. People sent meals. They sent you know, financial resources um, because the parking wasn't free. We would drive three hours to the, the hospital uh, you know, twice a week. And that isn't paid for by TRICARE. That was a huge financial burden. And someone just wrote us a check for the parking. And oh my gosh, I mean, I cannot tell you the number of times that I've just been reduced to a puddle of tears, just in gratitude, looking, going, oh my gosh, and just keep going and being a part of the community. 
because we deserve to be here. We do not need to be hiding in our houses like people have for generations. And if an event doesn't have access for us, then darn it, we're going to figure out how to build it. Because what I find is people aren't cruel. They're not willingly ignorant. Most of the time, they just don't know how to help and they would do it, but then they're scared they'll do it wrong. So they don't do something. Or because no one's told them, this wouldn't work for me. What if we did this? Yeah. So what would you say to people who may be listening, who are scared of how to approach situations or, you know, they're dealing with something themselves and maybe they, they know that it's not the same as what you're dealing with, but they're still also burdened themselves. So how do, how do you recommend people approach either, um, helping as, you know, both from the official side, how do, how would you recommend people approaching EFMP families or caregiving families? And then also from the friend side, how would you approach that? as a suggestion, because I think that, we, you know, we're a solutions-based organization and I know that you are too. And it sounds like you already have some ideas. I see the smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my biggest challenge is, is keeping concise. The things that were most beneficial to me was, uh, were that people didn't stop reaching out and they understood that it was exhausting trying to answer the same question a thousand times that, Hey, how's your kiddo doing? Hey, did you get any sleep? Hey, how's chemo going? Really? But I had a friend who said, okay, I really don't know anything about down syndrome, acute myeloid leukemia. And so she went and she researched it or, Hey, I don't know what neuropathy does. What do I do? If you can find out more about the disability, the situation, that is unbelievably helpful. And also, you know, it's hard to ask for help and it's hard to let people in because there is a judgment and just show up. You just show up and you say, hi, I'm here. I'm just going to shadow you and see what is it like? What's a meal like at dinner? And here we go. And just checking on people and knowing that, yes, you can give space, but the cliches don't help. And the other really please don't bring a lasagna. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> brings something with red sauce. And we joke and say, please, no more red sauce. We've been oh, the yeah. beneficiary so many wonderful, <laughs> wonderful meals, but our kids, you know, it, we would be happy to only eat lasagna once or twice a year for the rest of our lives because it's easy to make. And, but you gain a lot of weight when you're in a <laughs> hospital and you, you can't be running around, you can't be doing things and um, kids get to be really picky eaters. Um, and there's only so many days in a row you want to eat the Stouffer's lasagna. <laughs> um, so my go-to is I always make a breakfast casserole or breakfast tacos or something for nursing yeah. moms in the middle of the night. You that know. makes sense. That makes sense. And so as far as like looking at EFMP or official systems and how, what solutions would you say would have helped you in your circumstance or what could, you know, within, we understand, like, like you said, a family member, a friend, those are the people who show up in the middle of the night. Like, of course, those are the people who are there for you, but within the limitations of the systems that exist, how could there be improvements? Mm. Well, that that's the million dollar question. That's the whole point <laughs> of partners and promise of what we're trying to do. Yes, um, yes. The first thing is never underestimate the the social networks, because I found medical answers on Facebook with other moms that I couldn't get you know, from doctors. So where EFMP community, you know, is, is often 
the systems are really disjointed. They are not codified. They are different. You have to re-enroll over and over. And the thing is you're wearing out your families. And the other aspect is a lot of the programming truly isn't helpful. Often we have people that say, oh, well, families don't know about it. If, if families just knew we were there for them, they would come to us. They would reach. They would come to these events. They would want to learn about an IEP. But it's true. Most of them may not know, oh, we can help you design a good IEP or we can come with you that when the school system shuts you down, says we won't do that. Go, you have to by law. So let's figure this out. They don't know that, but it's, we have a lot of that first step. We need that second step of, yes, you're going to need SSI. You're going to need a special needs trust. You're going to be looking at transitioning when you're getting out of the military. Now, here is a person whose number will not change, who will not retire and not tell you about it, who you can reach out to over and over. The other aspect is a lot of times your cat, if the diagnosis is new, you're catching a lot of service members and spouses who want to be involved and want information by five or six, seven, eight years down the road. It's not worth the time and the effort to go to an event where you're expecting to hear from a hospital professional and you know, you're not getting the help that you need and you don't have access. The other aspect is everyone thinks that they're not being heard. And we have a new representative, a new systems navigator. And the first thing she said is I'm calling everybody. I said, I've never received a call from a systems navigator. She says, I know we have lost people in the cracks. Even people who are close. I am calling them asking what they want to have something, what they want information on. How can I help? I am here. I am the new person. I will come to you. Well, that makes a world of difference to feel like, oh, we're being listened to. We asked, could we get this? And it's happening slowly, but surely. And the other is a lot of people don't want to do things because they think I'm at capacity already. I'm so exhausted. The last thing I want to do is volunteer. The last thing I want to do is provide respite for someone else. I'm already exhausted, but oh, over there, they have so much to do. And the thing is, the more you help each other, the more energy you get from the community because you have a role in it. You are encouraged by people loving on your kids. And one day you realize, oh, these people aren't weirded out by us. And well, maybe a little, but you know, they, we belong here. We insist on being seen. Yeah, absolutely. And so thank you so much, Caitlin, for joining. I really appreciate your story and your transparency. And I think that as we look at our at data, you know, it's so important for us to remember that there are these are representing like thousands of family members and people. You know, our survey we had over one thousand one hundred respondents, representing countless more than that. That was just the number of people who took the survey, not the people who they're representing. And so, you know, that represents caregivers and family members, and children. Um, we just want to make sure that we're telling stories as well, because it's, it's easy to look at the data and to maybe just pass it over or not really think about what that means and how that impacts individuals. But thank you so much for bringing it back to that individual level and telling your story today. Do you have any last words before we close out (laughs) or any last minute pieces of advice from your experience? I would say a lot of times you see something on paper and you assume someone's getting it because they're entitled to it or they should know about it or couldn't they just access it Uh, like respite care, things like that. Usually that's not the situation. And 
I'm just thrilled that we have organizations like Partners in Promise, which is why I, I sought you out and said, I want to get involved. Please <laughs> let me help. Let me, let me do something. Um, yeah. Because it does it a whole bunch of drops in a bucket fills a bucket and there is legislation being done there. There's so much that we can do together. And to all the moms out there who are, or, or, or for anyone out there who are in that dark night of the soul, who, you know, we're really struggling with, you know, depression with things like that, just really feeling like there is no way out. I'm never going to sleep through the night. There will always, I, I will never escape this. I've been there, absolutely been there. And the cliches won't help, but just, I see you, I am you and you're not alone and you matter. And you have allies too. So many, so many allies. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and keep an ear out for future episodes. Thanks everyone. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Association of Brag Spouses, also known as ABS. ABS is a place for spouses at Fort Bragg to get together and enjoy volunteering and fellowship for the betterment of their Fort Bragg community. They do so in developing and fostering a spirit of community and provide opportunities for social, cultural, and creative pursuits and to also support service and community projects just like this podcast. We thank them for their sponsorship. And if you would like to connect and learn more about ABS, you can do so by sending them an email at fortbragabs at gmail.com. Do you want to help us tell more disruptive stories? Consider sponsoring an episode of the podcast. To learn more or ask questions, email info at partnersinpromise.org or connect with us on social media. And don't forget to subscribe today.